So, so you sit there talking about all this privacy stuff, then it's like, no, I'm not using that chat client because I got a chat client and I'm using Google Hangouts <laughs> Blender. Do that. I'm not using another chat client. Privacy is oh. important. You're listening to PHP Ugly episode 49, recorded Saturday, February 11th, 2017. Today, we welcome back myself, John Congdon, and discuss Laravel Dusk, PHP Unit 6 and its dependence on PHP 7, the Package Development Standards new group and their initial package, PDS Skeleton, Laricon, Keybase, cross-site scripting, email privacy, anonymous data, and so much more. Let's get started. Hey guys, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) Well, look who it is. That is a great intro. Hi, John. John Congdon. What's going on? Hey, Thomas, how you doing? Pretty good. How you doing, Eric? Good, good. John, long time no talk. I think we finally turned the corner. I might be back. Crossing fingers. Well, that, well that's it. I'm leaving. That is, I'm leaving the state. Sweet. That, that's the only reason I'm coming back. Came back to say bye and then good riddance. <laughs> Kick Thomas <laughs> off the air. So My what wife. you been working on, John? Come on. You've 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 been like all you know, off air, not tweeting. I, I saw you you're starting to pick up in your tweets a little bit now. What you been working on? So I'll I'll address that first. Picking up on the tweets. I took Facebook off my phone Good and, call. and nice. realized I still like to post pictures of my kids for family. And if I tweet, it automatically goes to Facebook. So I'm like, oh, I'll just start tweeting these things. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, so uh, Thomas and I were just talking, actually, last couple of podcasts, the topic has come up about, and it seems to be happening more and more with tech people dropping off Facebook. I know, and it wasn't a conscious effort. I didn't say, that's it, I'm done with Facebook. I just personally got sick of it. Did kind of the same thing for the longest time I had it off my phone. Recently, I had to, I finally had to log into it on my phone because I had one freaking app that logged in through Facebook, which made me log in through my phone. But I've been off Facebook for a while and can't really say I miss it. So I don't miss Facebook. Facebook and I'm not wasn't trying to get off of Facebook by any means. It was more when I'm out with the the family, I'd find myself pulling the phone out just to see what's going on. And it was distracting me from family time. It didn't bother me so much during work and when I'm at work I got my browser anyway, so if I want to check it, it's there. It's more when I'm out and about. So I'm like, let me just take it off the phone. I won't go looking at it. And it's been remove that remove that temptation. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a week, it's been fine. The only thing I do miss is posting pictures, like I said, of the kids for the family to look at. When I took it off the phone, I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'll just do it from the browser and be good to go. Friends and family. I do love your, your kid pics. Friends and family. Uh, you've got some adorable little ones. Thanks. You did fork a child process. That's what, what's been taking you so long. True. Yeah, he, he's had some, I guess, some, some merging conflicts with... Uh... With the with the family code base that he's been working through, so we're we're about four weeks in to cry it out. So he, it's taking him a while. We're, we can finally put him down at night and walk away and be okay. He's still flaring up for anywhere from ten minutes to an hour around the nine well, o'clock he's, hour. He's teething too now. Now he is. Yeah, that's sort of last week. So I think we turned a corner. 
I think I'll be able to to step away and and join. Now I just need you guys to mention me in Slack to to get my attention. Yeah. Now to be fair, Eric and I had discussed it before, and you were always able to to walk off and do whatever you wanted to. It's just that you weren't willing to. No, during the during those times, I was like, I need some sleep. So if I can get to bed and then be woken up every hour, I'm gonna do that. Versus try and stay up and, it, and be on air. Yeah, and to be fair. We normally record much later, so occasionally we'll shift that that recording around. Like today, we're recording on a Saturday, and it's fairly early. It's eight thirty, but normally it's Thursday night. T- what time? Ten thirty. Ten thirty. Start. Yeah. And because and I, by the time you finish, I, yeah, because I still put my teenagers to bed and have to lay with them and make sure they go to sleep without fighting. And just to be clear, I'm gonna. I prefer the Thursday night because Friday night and Saturday night are normally family time. So. Trying to step away from that is difficult. So, but glad to be back. I, <laughs> family time differently. I know you've, uh, I know you've been doing or getting more and more involved with some TDD. Yeah, I'm working on a refactoring a big piece of a client code base, and decided I'm going test driven design or development. And I've done it before. And loved it when I've done it, but it's such a cultural thing. If the other developers on the team don't participate, it makes it so difficult to jump in and keep doing it. But for this specific piece of code, I knew it was going to be large. It's the advanced search on a site, searching tons of different fields. And it's basically just a huge query builder. So I decided from the get-go, I'm doing it test-driven. And I've had to refactor this thing three or four times now just as things have come up, I've changed how I wanted to do it. I wanted to clean things up. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, there's been database issues that they've come across. And I've had to refactor how the queries are done to suit their needs. So having those tests have been amazing. And I've always loved having tests. It's just a matter of getting people to write them. And being the only one on the team that really loves it, it's so hard. And I think I've talked about it in the yeah. It's it's weird because testing development though is, is a different philosophy and and the thing I struggle with. So I, I was explaining to John Thomas when I learned Rails, the course I was taking was a was teaching it through test driven development. So I learned Rails through test driven development, and it seemed so natural and it seemed right, and I, I was I was very comfortable doing it, but. I still to this day struggle and I and I get the benefit too but I struggled getting that translation to PHP and, and I, you know I agree with you I think tests are great and I wish I had more time to write them but for me test I fight trying to do tests beforehand because I just want to I want I want to get to the code and get get coding but being able to write that test that you want to code towards takes a different mindset I guess is what I'm saying yeah and and I'm I'm really starting to love testing I've been doing a lot of it the last couple of weeks as part of this 4.2 to 5.3 upgrade. And it's, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Having Gulp as an example where it's watching your PHP files and as soon as you change it, it runs your tests. I've added just stupid Gulp handlers that are only watching and running very specific tests for me instead of running the entire test suite so that it's running a subset of the test only on what I'm working on. So that's been fantastic. Again, it's once you get your mind wrapped around it, it's nice. But a large portion of the code base that I'm working in is so database dependent. It makes it hard to really isolate the tests. That's why working on the feature I'm in 
is helping because I can get rid of that dependency. Yeah, I haven't dug into TDD yet, but uh, I'm I'm excited to do it in a couple weeks. You know, I'm off week. I'm off work for two weeks now. Mm. Well, you spoke to Adam Watham last week, right? I know. I've I've got a list of books that I will be acquiring, and his his TDD book is definitely top of the list. Series. It's a it's a video series, yeah. but yeah, it's it's a good one. I, I've started it. I need to I need to kind of get back to it. I, I need to revisit it. I think so. I think one of the big things with TDD that hit me over the past few weeks was reading an article that just kind of made things click. Where previously I've written tests very specific to the class I was working in, so. My test tree basically followed my model tree or any other classes that I had. And instead of thinking of it that way, think about the test you're writing. So in my case, I'm writing an advanced search test. It should be following that, not necessarily following the classes that perform the tests. And it just made them right, so, so different. Let me ask you this question. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. but. With testing, there, there's different types of testing. There's the unit testing and acceptance testing and, uh, you know... Functional I, testing. I, I, I kind of think of it as functional and acceptance testing as being sort of the same thing. But, mm. yeah, people kind of break those. Those are like the three main ones. Mm. When you're doing test-driven development, what sort of testing are you doing specifically? Are you doing functional testing, acceptance testing, or unit testing? So, I mean, it's under PHP unit, but it's not necessarily unit testing. The, the the big thing I'm working in is using a factory. So it's spinning up a bunch of objects that are driven off the same interface for the most part, but building the query a little bit differently. So technically it's functional testing because I am calling a single function that based on the input into that will end up spawning objects that I'm working on. So I think in the grand scheme of things, it's functional testing but my tests are written to target specific objects, if that makes sense. So I call this sense. I call this central method, which ends up creating these other objects, and that's how I'm testing those. I'm not testing them directly. And I, I've seen that um, I've seen some techniques where it starts with acceptance testing, and as you get the acceptance testing to pass, then you start creating unit tests and consolidating code into the correct objects. So you, you sort of create mocks for the things that don't exist yet. And then using those mocks, you create unit tests for new objects that will need to be created. That makes sense. The other big thing from that article I was referencing was people over mock because with mocks, you end up causing issues in your tests where when you change something, your tests still pass because you're using mocks, but the actual code breaks. So, yeah. so the only place you should use mocks are when you cross what they call service boundaries. So when you hit the database or you're hitting a third-party service, something you don't really have control over, that's the only thing you mock. You don't mock your internal objects. Yeah, and I think of it as, as mocking being used for stuff that has its own unit testing. So if I've got a library that is unit tested and has its own... Uh, system, you know, that I'm not in control of, that I can mock that safely. Yes and no. You can do that only if you are running those third-party tests, which I install a ton of crap through Composer. I don't run their unit tests, so I don't know if things have changed. So that doesn't always hold true. True. But that's why Semver is important. It is, but again, the... People, yeah, some... people don't follow it. Some library maintainers 
just go, I'm on version 1.0. I'm going to go 1.0.1, and they don't know what Simver really is. End up so breaking things. I've been playing around with a new acceptance testing system. And I know we've discussed this on a previous podcast, but it's pretty snazzy. Uh, Laravel Dusk. Have you guys used Dusk at all? I have not. I haven't had an opportunity to use it yet, no. But I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Have you done anything with Selenium in the past? Yes. I have worked with Selenium, yeah. So it's not very different, except that it doesn't use the Selenium driver. It just uses the Chrome driver or Firefox driver, which is a much lower profile and easier to use and doesn't involve the awful, awful Selenium Java <laughs> requirement. <laughs> yeah. You can't say yeah, awful I'm... when it's when it does so much <laughs> right. Excuse me. So are you are you using Laravel Dust currently? Or are you looking to use it? I I've played with it and I've got it working, which was before five point four was officially released, so it was not a supported product at that time. Uh, and really, really enjoyed writing code for it because it's the same general format as the the Laravel test cases were for previous versions of Laravel, where you can say see this text in this element or see that this pops up on the screen. Um, but it has support for JavaScript, which is fantastic. And it has support for waiting until something happens, which Selenium did not do well. Yeah, I guess if you were using Behat, they had drivers in there that would use Selenium and other drivers to do the same things to run your JavaScript. But it's interesting. I would like to take a look at Dusk here. Yeah, I know Matt Stauffer. Um, we, we talk a lot about Jeffrey Way. And I mean, he's kind of the, the god of the tutorials when it comes to everything in Laravel in his Laracast series. But Matt Stauffer typically will write some a very detailed uh, blog post on uh, feature sets in, in Laravel each release. And he's done the same thing here with uh, with Five Four, and the last one he's released was about Laravel Dusk. So I'm I'm reading through that now, and it, it, they're great blog posts because they're very detailed. They kind of break away from all the other tutorials and seem a little bit more real world. And the cool thing about it is there's there there I find myself referencing his blog posts more than I do trying to go back to like a Laracast video and find a point in the video where he might talk about a specific feature that I'm trying to work through. But yeah, that's out now. Uh, and that, that link will be in the show notes. So question for you, Laravel desk, is it only usable with Laravel code? Not at all. You know, when I first got it, I, I had to create a, an empty five, four project to install dusk into. And I ended up testing multiple different uh, sites I was developing through this third package that, that wasn't in any way tied to the, the sites I was developing. So you can you can create tests for anything, you know, because it, it is just the acceptance test. It's just what the browser sees. So you could create a project that was just your tests. One of the funnier stories, John, was a post that somebody had done where they had used... Uh, laravel dusk to pay one of their bills <laughs> their online bill system didn't have a way to automate bill payment and so he wrote dust test to allow allow it to log in and 
and bill, pay a bill, and it's kind of funny. <laughs> Interesting. So he wasn't really testing anything. He was just using it to browse a third-party site to automatically pay a bill, right? Cool. So with with what you said, Thomas, are you talking about you created a basically another repo to actually track or test your other sites? You didn't build it within a current site. Right, right. It was just a separate project all on its own that wasn't directly tied to anything. So it's still using the Laravel framework, but you didn't have any Laravel code. It just empty code Correct. base with all your tests. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, because, you know, I just recently implemented a Laravel package that we implemented it to do some very simplistic server monitoring, make sure a server was up responding and to check the expiration date on on the certificates kind of using your concept i could actually expand on that even more uh with laravel dust kind of it sounds like uh thomas where i could i could actually make sure some of the functionality within the website and again there, there are monitoring solutions out there that do this now but yeah it's yeah, always you- good to have more monitoring if you already speak PHP and Laravel, then why learn Nagios to do your uptime monitors? Right. Exactly. That's, that's interesting. Interesting to think about that. Uh, PHP Unit, now that we're speaking about it, PHP Unit 6.0 has been released. And the kind of big news with that, and this is was kind of the heads up that Taylor Otwell gave us, when we spoke to him on Laravel chat not too long ago was that the reason that Laravel 5.5 was going to have a requirement of PHP 7 or higher wasn't necessarily anything within Laravel itself. It was the packages that he was using to build Laravel and he specifically mentioned PHP unit and how the next version of PHP unit, which is this one, PHP unit 6.0 was dropping support for 5.6 not even support but my understanding is it's not even compatible with php 5.6 yeah i actually have to have php 7 or higher i actually got bit by this last week (laughs) i was trying to upgrade php unit on my mac and just follow tutorials to install the latest and it just wasn't working and this was why yeah and just to just to let you know um i think you misspoke before you said PHP 5, you meant Laravel 5.5? Right. Laravel 5.5 is going to have a requirement of PHP 7 or higher. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, now, besides that, though, there's not a whole lot different. Um, there is get expected exception code and get expected exception message, but those really could be just general assertions. You could assert for those in a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Through a try, not a whole lot new. Catch. Yeah, there's a globals backup command line option, a don't report unless tests command line option. But yeah, there's just not not too much, except that it's dropping support for 5.6. Just something to know if you're gonna gonna use the latest and greatest. Yeah, and I think it, in general, it's just kind of a consensus among package developers to draw that line in the sand and say, okay, we're moving forward now. We've been aggressive to to get seven released and to to start to deprecate five six and yeah you know, this is this is our line in the sand five six is no longer 
supported. We get security patches for the next uh, few, like I forget how many months it is now, but it's like another, um, it's like another we, year or year and a half. Uh, I, I I don't know if it's that long. They they, ex- they, they extended December. it. No, December two thousand eighteen. I think I think they extended it further. I think I I know I know the security patches actually end the same time security patches for seven o and so like right around the same time there might be a month difference so maybe John's right maybe it is another year and a half well because I think yeah, uh, it's, it's active support ends yeah it's Good. January first two thousand nineteen or actually December thirty first two thousand eighteen or five six well, you 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 mentioned it a funny way you said that the the package developers and library developers had come to a somewhat of a consensus on it. And um, there's actually now a new standard for package development from the PDS group, the the package development standards group. And it's their first standard. It's the first one they've issued, uh, supported by Paul Jones and friend of the show, Paul Jones. Yeah. Friend of the show, Paul Jones. (laughs) And uh, I love this one. It's, it is the skeleton, the PDS skeleton standard, and the idea is simply to say when you're developing when you're developing a package, and you you froze up, you no, froze up. See, see, John, John hasn't been on. We we've learned not to not to talk when he freezes because his recording continues going. Uh, yeah, we just so burn he, does, through. he doesn't know he's frozen. He he'll just talk through it. Gotcha. My it's bad. not just me. You guys do it too. No, it's really pretty much you. God damn it! I never. <laughs> so the sad, the sad part is, I just released the new package, and I've been, I was looking for this because I knew it existed, but I forgot the name of it, and now we're talking about uh, it. So upset about that. But that's so. But that's great because now you can fix it. All right. So, so what I, that... what I like the most, what I like the most about the standard. And we'd spoken about the standard in a previous show. I think it was episode forty-one or forty-two. It was it was fairly sure. recently, yeah. but now it's officially released. So we we talked about them building it. And what I really like about the standard is the way they went about defining it, which was they didn't sit around a table and say, "Okay, how are you doing it?" You know, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. They they had a system which went into all these packages and kind of got a consensus of all the released packages on how people were doing certain things. And then they took all that information and started to build the standard, which, I don't know, seems like a really good way of doing a standard. Yeah, uh, they... They outlined what the required directory structure should be, what the change logs and licensing and stuff should be, and they managed it all through an automated script that ran across GitHub and, and checked what people were already doing. Um, so, and they've they've since it's officially released now, you can put a badge on your README file that will display the PDS skeleton badge in GitHub and show everyone that you're doing it the right way. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's really nice Did to any, see. Anybody happen to notice a new feature in GitHub this week? Did anybody else? Did you notice the black bar across the top of your GitHub? I don't see a black bar. You don't have a black bar across the top of your GitHub? Huh? It's weird. I I was working. I was. Uh, oh, I see it now. Yeah. Work, you, yeah, that's. I was working with somebody yesterday. We were doing some pair programming, and mm-hmm. I log into GitHub. I'm like. What what is that? And it's very simple. It, it's it it has pretty much the stuff that was up there before your profile and all that. The only difference now is 
there's a centralized place to look at all your pull requests, all the issues you're tracking. Wow. Um, which wasn't there before. I, I don't think was there before. Maybe I'm wrong. I've never seen it there before. That, that's very yeah. interesting. So for somebody like myself, where I have multiple projects, multiple clients, and I can technically have multiple pull requests open across those projects, it's nice now to have one place to go to and see all my open pull requests. Is this sad that I have... John, to, I, I'm sure you'll appreciate that. I have I have 30. 30 open. I know. Open pull <laughs> requests? 27, yeah, 27 from one client, and then three from open source projects. That will probably never be accepted. Going back to February 2012. <laughs> you have three from open source projects. Yeah. There was a lot of conversation back and forth, and they decided they didn't want to accept it. Two of them are from Gitflow that I did back in 2012. Nice. Yeah. I think you can close those. I'm, I'm surprised they haven't closed them. Why would they keep them around for this long? Some just simple see if you're paying attention. Yeah, I, I saw that. I, I just, it, I mean, not that it's a big deal or anything. It just kind of threw me a little bit. I'm like, oh, what is that? Well, thanks for depressing me. I, that wasn't there in my life <laughs> two minutes ago. <laughs> now I see I have all these open. <laughs> so we talked uh, a lot about Laracon, and we've talked a lot about Laracon here on the show and our our continuing desire to get Laracon US here in San Diego. Now our new, our new objective is 2018, but um, a lot of talk within the community about the decision to move Laracon from con- where it was in Kentucky to in Louisville, Kentucky to New York, with the fact that they were actually moving to a, a smaller establishment, and now you find out that Laracon US is sold out, and this is, I mean, a relatively niche market. Laravel developers that they're selling out a conference in New York, which makes makes the conference itself inherently not cheap. The, the conference is cheap. The, the ticket price to the conference is cheap, but the attendance isn't exactly cheap. Um, and they sell out. We're talking, what are months. we talking? Six months? months? Yeah, yeah six months before the damn conference. You know, it's like, why are you? Why did they make that move? Why did they? If they if they were making that move, it would have made sense if it was a bigger place. But I don't know. It just seems it seems really odd that 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 had happened. Now you don't know the full story. Maybe there's some behind the scenes things going on. Maybe Taylor had worked out a deal with some corporation that's doing some sponsorship that makes it easier. There's all there's all these unknowns, but still. Selling out six months before the conference just seemed kind of crazy. Well, for those people who have kind of missed that opportunity to attend Laracon US, a new conference has been announced. Now, this is not being run by Taylor, uh, who also, side note, doesn't run Laracon EU. That's run by a different group as well. Now, Laracon Online has been announced, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's going to be an online version of the conference. It looks like they have a lot of the same speakers who are going to be speaking at Laracon US speaking, but it kind of raises some questions, and, and it's cheap. It's like 10 bucks, right? It's an all-day online conference. They're going to have Slack channels to kind of simulate that between-talk 
feel where everybody's going to go into Slack and have conversations if they want. Go ahead, John. I was going to say, so Laricon EU is run by a different group than Laricon US. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I'm thinking GigaDev runs Laricon SD. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure there's, I, I think we could uh, get some people behind that. Wait, wait, what about Laricon Colorado? Nobody would go to Colorado. Nobody. Who it's the happiest state oh, in the country. Yeah, Can I finish my conversation about Luricon online? I suppose. So a couple of people have brought up the, the question of, since a lot of the same speakers are doing the online conference as the U.S. conference, what is the opinion on the subject matter? Like, do we think that the Laricon Online, which is being run by Eric Burns, who's obviously Laravel News famous, uh, and uh, a few others, Ian, uh, I forget Ian's last name, but uh, there, there's a few of them that, that are kind of managing the Laricon Online. I know, Thomas, what you're going to say, right? We just had this conversation about me not knowing the names of everybody who works on these efforts. I'm sorry. I'm bad at my job, and I just hit my mic just again. Take, just take a five-second break, start looking it up, and then see if, how no, many No, I'm you not going to look it up, because I, I'm already talking more about this Laricon Online than I wanted to. The question is, <laughs> do, do, we, do we think that the subject matter is going to be the same. This is kind of my question to you guys. Is it the same? If it is. Huh? Is it the same? Right. Is it the same? But if it is the same, if you've bought a ticket to Laricon US, do you feel gypped? Do you think the content should be the same? I mean, what's your opinion of it? And just to kind of give you my opinion before you get started, I don't necessarily care if it's the same content. I think that there's a certain... When you go to conferences, um, you kind of walk away with things that you don't get with these online conferences, these personal interactions and conversations and side discussions that you have, just the opportunity to be in the same place with a bunch of people who are kind of doing the same thing, go grab a beer, talk to people that maybe you don't normally talk to on a day-to-day basis. So I still see a benefit to Laricon US. But that's the case with... Not everybody agrees with that's me. That's the case with any conference. All those all those personal interactions are amazing. But if, if they're posting the same discussions or same topics months in advance of the actual um, conference, I, I just don't like that. It just seems weird. So I don't... I would not be a fan of that. I'm hoping that they have different topics because I may... Do both. I do the Laricon online and the conference. If I paid for the online and it was the same topics that are going to be covered at Laricon US, I'd be frustrated. If it's different than 10 bucks well spent, I've learned something that I may not have learned somewhere else. Well, now you guys are, you guys run Diego Dev. You guys are the owners of the company. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say the fact that most people go attend these things as employees the fact that you're getting paid to learn in another city for a three or four day period is is pretty nice. Good point. That, that's very f- fair. I like that perspective. And and from what I've seen so far, there there are four speakers who overlap. You know, you've got Taylor, Jeffrey Way, Adam Wathen, and Matt Stauffer. Um, oh, and Evan Yu. I'm sorry, five. Uh, but there are a number of people speaking at Laricon US that are not going to be part of Laricon Online. And I believe those videos from Laricon US will also be available for a low, low one-time price after the event. 
Actually, yeah. I, I think after the, the event, they're free. At least they were for the Don't last correct two years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Daddy. Yeah. Really yeah, when I talked to Eric, he brought that up too. And you have a good point. It, there's, there's something to being there personally that makes it special. Interacting with other people. Uh, that's the way I feel about tech. Going to tech is amazing because you get to see people once a year, once every other year that you got to know through that venue which is really nice right but is it worth the is it worth the cost right because really that's that ends up to be what you're paying for yeah you're paying for and it for me it's good yeah. for me <laughs> i have a question for and you for, guys yeah do you ever get the feeling that there's people listening in on our conversations no nah, never <laughs> people don't want to hear what we're talking you about ever, you ever think somebody's watching right now as we talk as we just in the privacy of our no, own. No, no, actually, they're not. I, I can see, I can see the viewers as zero. We're okay. Oh, it does say okay, good. <laughs> I saw that forty nine for a second. I got my hopes up, but I realized that's the uh, that's, that's the, the episode rate. we're on. <laughs> <laughs> well, in you know, case in case I, I re- you were ever I remember, concerned about it, hold on. I'm going to continue talking over you because this is my story. You son of a bitch. I, 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 already, stole, I already stole one from you. I know you did. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> I remember back in the late 90s, early 2000, like running four or five or six or seven instant messaging clients. And then and then you found something like, uh, what was that called? Trillion. Trillion. Trillion where you, all of a sudden you had one client. But no, you had it all was Adium. Different... That was another one. Yeah, Trillion yep. sucked. And uh, over the years, I slowly started weaning myself all these off of all these other instant messaging platforms and had really kind of gotten down to Google Hangouts. And then I had like a business requirement to be on Skype. Then I started looking at things like Wire and Telegram. And now I'm back into the same situation I was before where I have multiple clients out and more clients coming that I'm like, damn, that seems like a good idea. And the one that was recently released was this one for Keybase, which if you're not familiar with what Keybase is. What's Keybase? Um, so so Keybase Chat was released. And Keybase was is this kind of initiative to think of, uh, of simplifying um, PGP. Okay. And, and making, a, making a platform where it's easier to encrypt conversations, emails, and I've used Keybase in the past. So you go online, you go to Keybase, you get a Keybase account, you get this uh, encrypted PGP. It, it, it's I think it is PGP. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, you establish your PHP, um, PGP key. It validates who you are by things like validating you through Twitter or GitHub, and it has some functionality to do that. But then when you reach out to somebody through Keybase, you're pretty sure you know who you're talking to. And if you needed to encrypt that conversation, you have that ability. And I've leveraged that ability. I have used it for passwords where I'm working with one of our developers. They need a password sent to them. I'll go to Keybase, see if they have a Keybase account, encrypt the password, send it to them. And it's worked out pretty well. Well, now they have a chat client. And I'm like, God damn, that's a great idea. But I don't want another chat client. How do you feel about Thomas? I know you're one of these uh, tinfoil hat people. I, I dig it. That's great. It is another chat client, man. I can't do can't another. do another chat client. Yeah, I've got Hangouts, which it, it's already, I mean, I use it because it's so pervasive. It is just 
it's on my phone and it's what I use at my office for communication and it's it's just there. But I I've gotten rid of uh everything I can. I just I I can't stand having to have four different applications doing the same thing, you know. And I I have I recently kind of reconnected with Telegram because Telegram has uh, um, a, a platform that allows it to speak with bots. So I have I have bots that feed into Telegram a lot similar to the way I have it feed into Slack, which is another freaking communication app that I have. Um, but I, I don't know. I find myself... And it's funny because you really start to feel the impact of convenience over security when using chat clients because the thing that draws me to certain chat clients is the ability to encrypt the conversation and i haven't found one yet where if you're having a conversation on your desktop and you encrypt that conversation now i haven't tried this key based one i i I don't know if this applies to that but you're having a conversation on your desktop you encrypt that that conversation that conversation isn't available to you like on the mobile client like you go to to do, um, you you go to your phone and you look up that to continue a conversation that you had on your desktop that was encrypted. It's not available to you because of the way the encryption works. I, I bet with Keybase it is available to you only because they're using your keys to encrypt. So that yeah, that's it seems really, like it would be. That's really cool. Where I think with the individual clients, they're using it based on a a key generated when you install the client. Well, in the case of Signal, it's actually a key that's generated based off of the current estimated security of the key. So they they actually check consistently to see if the key is secure, and if it's not secure, they issue a new one on the fly. So it's a Signal is interesting, hmm. but yeah, I you know it's cool. I I like this this things moving towards security away from you know the the open garbage can at the end of your driveway. But still, another chat client is not the way it's going to get solved. <laughs> I like their step one. When you go to download for Mac OS, step one, buy an Apple computer. <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> We're not wrong. Take, take, your, take your existing computer, double its value because it has a shiny aluminum case. Okay, I want to see what it says for Linux now. What's step one for Linux? What do we think it is? Nothing nearly as funny. <laughs> <laughs> Same with Windows. <laughs> Nothing is funny. They get they get points. For, right. They get points for that. We do. That, that was actually cute. Nice little troll there. So we're you're on the next uh, the next little tab here before we get into my Tom's dark, scary, doom and gloom corner. I thought we canceled I, I am, that I segment. So trying to avoid it. Whose story is this? Is this mine? The uh, letter no, of Thomas's controller construct. Yeah. So I told you I was. I was porting a 5.2 to uh, or far, sorry 4.2 to 5.3, and I ran across this and I put this in the, in the chat here just because it. I was banging my head on my desk for two hours before I found something out. What's that? In like you're five, not a very good coder. No, I've known that for some time. You guys still hired me. I was gonna say something, uh, but I haven't yet. Yeah, save it for <laughs> save it for next show. Um, it, you know, I, I had a lot of session instantiation stuff going on in my, uh, constructor for my controllers. And it turns out that in 5.3, you just can't, the, the session is not available to your controller constructors. What? How would it not be available? Is it, it just is not, not been, there. 
Has it just not been started at that point? Correct. It hasn't been bound to the the uh, application at that point. And Taylor gives a reason. He says, it's very bad to use session or auth in your constructor as no request has happened yet, and session and auth are inherently tied to an HTTP request. You should receive this request in an actual controller method, which you can call multiple times with multiple different requests. By forcing your controller to resolve session or auth information in the constructor, you are now forcing your entire controller to ignore the actual incoming request, which can cause significant problems when testing, etc. So, I mean, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, it makes a good point, I guess. It's just that the what I was... Aren't there there potentially other other things in the session that you want besides just authentication potentially Did I miss something potentially setting cookies reading cookies doing minor middleware behavior uh but i mean he he has his reason i don't know if i agree with it it's well it's well thought out and well reasoned i just don't know if that's the right thing for me so fortunately there's a quick three-line closure that you can throw in to your constructor that will instantiate the session so you can access it just like it was in (laughs) 5.2. Kind of like, screw you, I'm doing it anyways. Yep. So we're going to have this link in the the chat notes, the podcast notes, whatever we call them. And uh, I recommend it. If you're having trouble getting ported up because your session just is no longer there, that you check out this you know, one line of code you can. So basically, in. you're you're telling me Taylor put the safety on the gun. And you're just kind of like, screw it. I'm going to shoot myself in the foot anyways. Yeah, that's what I do. That's what you do. Don't security. act surprised. <laughs> screw the security of it all. No, I I think it's weird too. I mean, I mean, I I see what he's saying. I think it's I think it from a security perspective, it makes sense for all. I'm not quite sure I understand how that's happening. Like, how is how's he... It's it's not really security. It's more the sense that, that right now we run in PHP in a single request environment. So PHP gets a request and runs and then exits in garbage cleanup. But the direction that PHP is taking in the future is actually not single request. It's continuous execution of a loaded, compiled version of your code. Um, I, I have tinkered with this in the past uh, using a number of different, it's, it's rough, but there is a, a number of things you would have to do to, to do this. Boy, let me, let me see if I can dig this. We don't have to get too deep into it, really. I mean, we got about 10 minutes here, and then, and then you got a pretty deep doom and gloom hole you want to go jumping in. Yes, PHP, PM, and fast CGI. So with those, you can run those a single instance. Words. Yeah, you, with those two tools, you can run a single instance of a PHP application that handles multiple requests in one execution. And I think PHP, generally speaking, is headed that direction. Uh, it does speed things up crazy significantly. So I think this is just in, in an awareness and a preparation for that, is that constructing your controller isn't necessarily a single request instance. But okay, for me, way I'm, more I'm time on that card. Way more oh, time on that, on that card. It's okay. It's 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 your show after this, buddy. I, I, I'm gonna I bring know. it right back to you guys. I'm gonna force you to address these moral issues. You guys ever you guys ever play with cross site scripting? Play with in what yeah. in which way? Understand what it is. Yes. Play with it. No. Have you ever have you ever taken the time to understand all the ways in which it can go real bad? 
Probably not all the ways, because I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure way not. more in depth yeah. than I really understand. So that's the thing, is that somebody at Google decided, Jesus, that this is the worst. XSS is everywhere, and even on the most enterprise systems, people are vulnerable because they cannot understand what it is that makes them vulnerable. So they made a test. They made a they made a, an XSS game. So this is xss-game.appspot.com, and I gave up. I absolutely... They have hints. They have little toggles to show all the code that's executing, and they have really simple targets to achieve. You just have to get an alert to pop up in JavaScript. Dude, I the first one I got fine. The second one I struggled with. The third one I absolutely could not solve. And the fourth one, I don't even know where to start. But... <laughs> So what are you doing? I mean, it just takes you to web pages that it asks you to exploit, or yeah. So it's got a it's got a couple little iframes that this game runs in, and it gives you a form that you can enter arbitrary, you know, data into, and then it gives you a result page which displays your arbitrary data in some secure-ish way, and you have to look at the code and look at the output and figure out how you could inject JavaScript into it. And I did not even begin to realize where certain things are vulnerable that I did not expect them to be vulnerable. So uh, is this a game? Is this a learning experience? What What are you selling both. here? It's both. It's a game and a learning experience. Um, for example, did you know that uh, you don't need a script tag to execute JavaScript? What? I don't see what you're saying there. You can, you can execute JavaScript... With an A tag. Ah, um, an that, A tag? That makes sense, yeah. Or did you know that an image tag can execute JavaScript? No. I didn't know that because that, that was that whole, ex, there was an exploit built on that before. I remember that. So if an image doesn't load correctly, then the browser will execute the on error script in the image tag. So all you have to do is put an image tag in there and then some JavaScript into the on error. It doesn't require the JavaScript colon uh, qualifier. It doesn't require... I mean, there's just stuff I had no idea. If you strip tags out of your script and you allow insertion of an image tag, that's just as bad. <laughs> wow. So, so you said you struggled with a couple. Was there... I mean, is there a tutorial like... Is there a way to walk through the ones that you have problems with? or That was where I had problems with this, which is that there isn't a show solution and explain exploit at all. So mm -hmm. you do have to do a Google search for somebody who solved this and then wrote an article about it. Uh, <laughs> but... I, I always have this fantasy in my head that this is like really a job interview. Like they make these games and if you get through it, you know, automatically they offer you a job. You seem to know I, what you're talking about. It's probably not far off. Um, this is it's it it's tough, and I I got to level four out of six levels, and by you know I hit the four, landing page, and the landing page itself scared me. I'm like, I don't trust this thing. I don't know what this crazy. I didn't even realize. I I didn't even read it close enough apparently to realize that it was something that was done by Google, which is I think what you said, right? This right. is Google. This was yeah, by Google. I, I hit that landing page. I'm like, yeah, no, this looks this looks shady as hell. I'm not doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, it's cool. I like it. I, I I need to. How do you how how did you figure out this was from Google? I mean, I'm looking at the page now. There's nothing. 
Uh, the article that, telling me? the article that linked into it stated that this was written by a Google employee who had a couple hours of free time to do uh, whatever. And a mood. bitterness. So yeah, <laughs> some kind of, free of distaste. Bitterness. Well, and he mentions that Google does pay upwards of $7,500 for XSS bugs that are discovered in their products. So if the, you find bounty, yeah. yeah, so if you find something that, that isn't known, the, they'll give you a, a hefty chunk of change. All right. What's next? Your show. My show. I, I, I'm installing Keybase uh, chat client right now, so can't I can't really you're just, talk. You're just checked out. For a long time, the U.S. House of Representatives have been trying to get an email privacy bill passed, and it has made the first step. It's passed the House. It's going on to the Senate. It is an amendment to the Electronics Communication Privacy Act, which is a 1986 law that basically says, yeah, email requires a warrant, which I didn't know this. Email older than 180 days does not require a warrant. Right. Well, you don't remember we had this conversation. I, I told you I, I worked for a, a corporation that established a policy. They were deleting emails over, I, I don't even think they went that long. I think they did 90 days or 120 days. Maybe yeah. it was 120. And I mean, it's kind of this weird thing where you don't really, at least for me personally, emails, I keep emails around an archive and reference them constantly to see past conversations I might have had with somebody on a topic. Uh, so, th I mean, it's, it's a pretty impactful thing, but yeah, that's, that's definitely a thing. It's been a thing for a while. Yeah. So the issue arises in that when this was written, the, the idea of cloud storage just didn't exist. And so the, the thinking was if somebody's keeping their email around for longer than a, 180 days, it's the equivalent of leaving your mail in the trash can in front of your yard. It's if I can get to it, if I can access it, then it's just gar it's your garbage. You don't care about it. Well, now we know different. Now we know that everything we do is stored indefinitely on our phones and then to our cloud systems and then to a cloud backup from that cloud system, unless you're using GitLabs or anything like that. But it's backed up 10,000 times before you have any access to it. I mean, I, I can go into my email and find items that I've tried very hard to delete that never really disappeared. You know, you delete it, move it to the trash, empty the trash, and then do a search for your email, and boom, the one you just deleted and emptied is back up. Mm -hmm. And it's in some it's in some trashed, trash, to-be-garbaged folder that Google has created or something like that. But it's not gone. And never so, will be, because they have backups for days, I'm sure. Right. So, you know, previously, if an investigator wanted to get access to your emails, he just had to basically face a mirror and say, I want his emails, and then say to himself, okay, you can have them. And that was all the legal requirements that were expected. Mm. So now this bill is going on to the Senate where it might face some big problems, but at least it's gotten there. At least, at least the movement is being made. No thoughts? You still playing with that chat client? No, you can't prove anything. It's all encrypted. <laughs> I can, I can see the painting behind you. It's reflecting your screen. <laughs> oh, so let's talk about that for a second. There's, um, I know we don't have a card on this. I, I meant to look up this card, but did you hear that? Uh, the, 
all these cop shows, I mean, it's been going on for a while. And it, in our industry, it's actually somewhat of a joke now where the whole, hey, hey, look at the reflection in the guy's eye. Can you zoom in on that? Can you enhance yeah. it? Enhance. And they, enhance, enhance, enhance. Yeah, exactly. Do you know that Google actually now has a uh, imaging sort of platform that is kind of doing that thing where, and I, I didn't read up on the article, so I hope I'm not talking too much out of my ass here, but it, and it, I'm getting to the controversy around it, which you'll probably identify fairly quickly, but it's, it's able to take a picture and based on the, the power of, of the Google infrastructure, which we all know is major, major, major. I mean, we're talking supercomputer stuff. It, it can take an image and figure out reference points within that image, start to fill in the pixels down to a pixel level of what it's missing to complete the image. And supposedly through their, their testing phase, that they're getting like all these really good results. Like it, it's very much like, Hey, yeah. Enhance, enhance, enhance. And it's working. Hmm. Now the question, of course, that's being raised by a, a lot of the, the concerned people online is, you know, when, what happens when they're wrong? Is, <laughs> well, and, and should this ever be admissible because it's faking an image like fake okay, news. <laughs> it, it, it enhances an image of a person robbing a store, but it's not really an image. It's something that was com constructed by the supercomputer. Right. It's it's the equivalent of a digital artist's depiction. Yeah. So, like, what percentage <laughs> of it can be artificially generated, and what percentage of it can be actually, you know, received from a CCTV camera? Yeah. Interesting. So I just uh, my, thought that was a side. My next side piece note. is kind of along those lines. Okay. Let's so you know, you, you know the old adage. Whoa, 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 whoa! We're we're already over, man. This is this has been episode forty nine. <laughs> Thank you. What? Okay, make it quick. This is the doom of the doom and gloom. I'm I'm out this of is, wine too. That's the, the, that's the other problem we have and, right now. Okay. And, and I'm out of beer. I just cracked a new no. beer. Stay, go go refresh. No, no people don't want to listen to us this song. I'm sure of it. I don't want to listen to us this I, song. <laughs> This is this is an important piece of, of research. A lot of websites will say out loud, you know, yes, we're collecting data, but it's anonymous data. We're not associating the browsing behaviors to a specific user. Someone out there said, well, sure, you're not doing that. You're not associating it to somebody. But if you had the data and wanted to associate it to somebody, would it be hard? And the answer is simply no. Um, right. So a, a theoretical study was done that was able to generate you know, a reliable solution, a, re a reliable identification of a specific person from their browsing behavior a good percentage of the time. Well, they decided, well, let's, let's get 400 people to willingly give us their internet history and we'll see if we can figure out who they are just from that. And... They, they nailed a good 70% of the specific people who submitted anonymous data to them. They said, oh, yeah, this is anonymous data, and did their algorithm on it and said, oh, it's not anonymous anymore. We now know who it is. Mm -hmm. So when you're on a website that says we're collecting anonymous usage statistics, that simply just isn't the case anymore. They're not trying to tie it to you, but because it's yours, it can be tied to you. 
if this database of browsing behaviors got leaked, uh, you know, and this is a this was using a very specific test case of data that they could gather uh, with networks like Google, which have massive, massive tracking cookies and knowledge of user behavior. It's it's trivial to identify a huge number of people. So the their attempt to track people to their Twitter profiles based off of their browsing behavior that they submitted anonymously was successful 50% of the time, which I, I couldn't do that with my own. If I had my own data, I couldn't find my Twitter profile from it. But their large-scale demonstrations have shown that anonymization simply isn't a thing anymore. No, no. Yeah, and, and, and nothing about what you said surprises me either. No, of course not. Sure, no, it's it's not surprising, and, and these kinds of things, uh, the heuristic tracking of users from anonymous data to, to find them, has been theorized for a long time. The problem is that this is now executable. The algorithm exists, the computers are fast enough to do it, and more and more data is being collected every day, Wait, uh, to an extent you can't even imagine. But you're also really talking about browser data. People search tons of stuff. I mean, I... The websites you go to, being able to, to correlate all that data versus going to somebody's website that has some information about you is going to be less effective than having your entire browser history. Sure. So there's. But if someone can compromise your corporate network, then they could figure out who your employees were yeah. or who your anonymous sources were, things like that. That's a good take, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh yeah, and you can look up the corporate directory too. Who gives a shit? Who cares? I, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, and there's the there's the concern of, of privacy and making sure you stay private. But the real world impact of this doesn't hit me that if, hard. If somebody got I, on, I if somebody got on my computer, they're gonna know who I am, not from my browser history, but from all the other shit on my computer. Right. It's like, you know, do 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 you want to know who works for at Diego Dev? I don't know. Go to their website. It'll tell, you don't have to you don't have to skim the internet and find I can tell you who works for Diego people. Dev. Nobody. Yeah. Do you guys <laughs> Do you guys have a do you guys have a smart TV? No. Yes. No. Is is a Vizio? I was wondering if you're going down and you didn't have a card for it. God damn you. No, it's not a Vizio. Did you know that Vizio smart TVs were quote unquote tracking anonymous usage data from users? This. And this was not this was not using what channel you were tuned in on or what movie was in the DVD player or Blu-ray player. This was using audio visual recognition. So the same no, thing. No, 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 it wasn't, Thomas. It was. It was. It was not. It was. They, the, the, uh, my understanding of it is the worst thing that they nailed was that they were actually capturing IP addresses when they weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to be capturing any identifiable information. It wasn't identifiable. It was anonymous. Were. It was anonymous data, but they knew that this TV was watching this YouTube video or this TV was watching this television that, show. That's not what you said. You, Even, you said that they were... Even if you weren't using a cable tuner, if you had pirated a TV show and watched it on your computer on your computer through the TV, the TV was using audiovisual recognition to realize what show you were watching and to no, report that. Come on, so where are you reading this? Absolutely. So, so you're Fox your News. Understanding That's what it was. Of, you're, 
Your understanding, he, he's he's <laughs> quoting these alternate facts. Your understanding of the story and my understanding of the story are very, very different. Correct. So they did get busted. They 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 were they did lose. They were fined by the FCC. All of um, two million dollars. The the big things that my understanding of it are. Uh, they were collecting identifiable information, mainly like IP address uh, was was one of the bigger ones. Correct. And they were pulling like every, like it was a continuous poll where it wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be like polling every X amount of time, but it wasn't. It was a continuous poll. So you were constantly feeding this information to them. Right. Now, it, all this other stuff you're talking about, I don't know if any of that holds any no. truth, but what because boils, this is my story and I'm telling what, you it does. No, what it boils down to is they were recording the information, but they didn't tell you they were recording it. They were they were doing what everybody else does, but because they didn't tell you, hey, we are recording this information, that's what they got busted for. Right. And the court ruling was that they now have to tell everyone, but only them. Only no, Vizio no, way, has to tell Vizio no, has to provide a, a default of being opted out of this system and you have to actively opt in to the system. Right. That's because they had no way of opting out before where everybody else has a way to opt out. Well, no, not everyone has a way to opt out. It's just that Vizio got busted. And so this ruling applies only to them. But Samsung is still doing it with their televisions and does not have to follow this court ruling. So Samsung- They will when they doing... get busted. Right. I mean, if but you're working they... at Samsung and you realize- Oh shit! Our television does this. Maybe we need to do something about it. Except that Vizio, like John said, got fined two million dollars, but has recorded selling this information for more than that. Yeah. So getting busted yeah, was not a loss true. for them. Getting busted was still a profit. Doing something that is ethically questionable—not even ethically questionable—doing something that is ethically wrong made them a profit, and the courts showed that other companies should do the same thing. So this data, which they were collecting, which was based off of listening to the audio from the show or the YouTube channel or whatever, they encoded it and said it's being this person watches this and this and this. If they like science YouTube channels, they also like Mythbusters. That information was sold for a profit that was not mitigated by the court decision. And they're not requiring old TVs to be patched. They're just requiring that all new TVs have an opt-out by default with an opt-in prompt when you turn the TV on. Yeah, so the article so, I'm reading says the FTC has not announced any action on, on that complaint. And Samsung put a statement that its smart TV can be disabled at any time. I think that's where it comes down to is Samsung had... All you got to do is find the menu item. Samsung, yeah, had the option to disable where Vizio did not. And that's what it boils down to. Vizio had Vizio had the option. I don't think they did. I, I think that's See, where my, I think that's the crux of the problem. They had no way of opting out. My my issue is just that as I was gonna say, what what exactly so I, I, as a consumer, I wouldn't be happy to find out about this. The reality of it is the impact from and see this is where I start to draw the line. Like private industry, they're going to do shady things. That they're going to make money how they can make money, and if we catch them, we catch them. But in this case specifically, or, or in this, it doesn't impact me. I mean, how does it really impact you as a consumer? Yes, they shouldn't have been doing it. I'm glad that they got caught, but it's not like the government came in and arrested me because of the information that they got from Vizio. Vizio just used it to to figure out marketing techniques and to sell it to other marketers. But it's but, not like, 
all of a sudden I had people knocking on my door specifically because I watched a, a commercial on, on, on cookies and now all of a sudden I got a line of Girl Scouts outside my door trying to sell me cookies. No, but let's say let's say happening. there was let's say there was an administration in charge that wasn't too interested in people's privacy and decided that they wanted to start profiling people based off of their interest in explosives. So now since I watch explosives on YouTube and I watch cool science shows, I'm on a list. And that list restricts my rights as an anonymous citizen. Right, but, but you know, and, and this that's information something, that's something we would have to address. This information but, wasn't being used for police work because police didn't know this information existed. Now that this information is that. known to exist, it, it, our rights that can would be infringed. Be something... Okay, but that's not that's not what happened in this case. No, it, it in, will happen without us knowing. We won't notice it happening. That's my concern. My concern is that is that instead of the big TV on the wall with a picture of Big Brother, it's the big TV on the wall that literally is Big Brother. It's the TV on the wall that literally collects all of our data and hands it to a judge to decide whether or not we are guilty of some kind of insurrectional crime. Yeah, it's not a we, TV on the wall. It's, it's a speaker on my desk. <laughs> and the law, that, I think I, the law that they broke was simply the opt-in, opt-out thing. But if they wanted to well, collect non-anonymous data, they could. If they wanted to collect data that put ads up on your TV, they do. If they wanted to, I mean, there's there are all sorts of implications. The fact is, is that as consumers, we're wholly unprotected from any kind of unethical behavior from a company. No, we're not unprotected. That's the thing. They were caught. They 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 were. It, it was addressed. They were fine. Your 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 uh, argument of the fine doesn't um, discourage them from doing it in the future because they were fined less than they made is a valid argument. Uh, we're we're going off the rails a little bit by theorizing how it'll be used against an individual citizen in the future if the government got a hold of it. We're we're going off the rails because my point here is that yes, it does get addressed. It it is wrong. They're not allowed to do it. There are actions taken against them. Now, the question really is, is should those actions be more impactful? Should we be doing more? Should we say, that's it. You have to recall these televisions now. No, you can't push a software update. You have to recall them. You have to give these people new televisions that don't do this. But you can sign away every single one of your rights by clicking a button that says, okay, I've read the terms of service. And if their yep. terms of service said, we can collect and use any data we want, and they have an open microphone that is recording and permanently storing everything in your room, you would have no way of knowing. Your Amazon and Echo you did, right now. You, you did the same thing with your Echo. You did the same thing with your phone. You do the same thing with every software you install on your computer. Yes. So that's, the question that's is, why what, it's important should we, should have... we allow corporations to to oblige people to sign away their fundamental rights. I don't think we should allow corporations to do that. I don't think it should be ever okay to record everything going on in a room because I have a TV in that room. If it is- And if you're, it, not, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But but again, we're, we, we've got tinfoil hats on now. And, and we're, we're talking about theoretical impact of the way the things are happening now and or the way things are structured now. And yes, we need people in place to help protect us. And it's every person's individual responsibility to understand how that impact affects them. 
but are you going to stop using televisions? I mean, I mean that that's we'll the stop solution. Using smart Get televisions. offline. Go go live in a cabin in the woods woods somewhere. Hey, and I'm going to Colorado. <laughs> live off the grid. I mean, that's your solution. Yeah, or I mean, make it's, sure it's, make it's, sure it's, that the grid the same just thing. can't violate it's your rights. The, it's the same thing from your virtual existence and your 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 physical existence. Those worlds are merging, and just like we have rules in place that makes makes it illegal for certain things to happen to you in your physical world. We just have to make sure we have the people fighting for us to do the same thing in the virtual. That's and it. I see that happening. And it's not going to be corporations. It's not going to be companies. They don't care about you. They care about you. They care that they make money off you. But they don't care about your personal personal privacy. And that's, that's why the scary it's important part, to, they're the ones to ins- collecting. They that's don't why care it's important about you, to support they're... these groups, these open source groups, who who are are that that your privacy is a concern for them. You're thinking about Keybase again, aren't you? It's just sitting there on your screen. So, so you sit there talking about all this privacy stuff, then it's like, no, I'm not using that chat client because I got a chat client and I'm using Google Hangout <laughs> Blender. Do that. I'm not using another chat client. Oh, privacy is important. It's been another wonderfully ugly episode with you guys. This is John, way too long. This is why we can't have John. It's been on. had. It's been good Sweet. to have you back, John. What? It, no. no matter what he says. No. I I caused the episode run too long. I'm bowing out in the future. No God, <laughs> you cannot bow out. You are. You are I'm teaching bowing the wrong out. I've been promoted. I got another podcast. Screw you guys. Jeez. <laughs> you guys are fun. I missed. Right. I've missed you guys. We've missed you. No, we haven't. Am I really going to spend $30 on a Blinky? No. God, no. It's really not worth 30 bucks. Oh, wait. Are I, you I going got, to? Tw- yeah, no, you're going to. 25 right? Are you on Amazon? Yeah. Tw- it was like 25 29 35 Was it that Prime. much? God, it was an impulse buy. It was impulse. I I really, I don't regret it. I don't know. Now that no, it's 30 bucks, I might regret it. It's like a $5 thing. It's if that. And, well, uh, yeah, I'm like, yeah. Uh, but I can have it on All Valentine's right, gentlemen. It's, it's kind of fun. No, I can get on Valentine's All right. Day. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. <laughs> it's been fun. Glad to be back. Uh, this is this has been episode 49. 49? What happened, 49, to, what happened right. to like 3 through 48? I'm Eric uh, Van Johnson. I'm Tom Wrightout. And I'm John Congdon. Keep it ugly. Keep it ugly. Use a password manager. Thanks for listening to this episode of PHP Ugly. And a special thanks to our sponsor, the Diego Dev Group. If you are looking for developers who care about the code they create, the communities they build, and the solutions they implement, then you want to reach out to the Diego Dev Group. You can find the Diego Dev Group at www.diegodev.com. Links and show notes from this episode of PHP Ugly can be found at www.phpugly.com. You can follow our hosts on Twitter. You can also follow PHP Ugly on Twitter at phpugly. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Play Podcast, or SoundCloud. If you like what you hear, then please leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next week, keep it ugly.